Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. Of course, the Soapbox podcasts we do here at Risky Biz are, are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions paid to be here. Brett Winterford is our guest in this podcast. These days, he's the APAC CISO for Okta, but some of you might remember him as the founder of the Seriously Risky Business newsletter. So yeah, uh, Brett and I actually worked together for a time. Uh, but Brett is obviously here to talk about stuff that's relevant to single sign-on and authentication and all of that good stuff. And we cover actually quite a few topics here. Uh, so in this interview, we start off by talking about the emergence of really quite polished uh, attacker-in-the-middle real-time phishing kits that will handle uh, one-time password authentication flows and then pass a valid session cookie back to a user, but also keep a copy for itself. And as you'll hear, you know, you can even buy stolen session information instead of creds now in the in you know underground forums. And um, you know, you add all of this up, and one-time passwords are starting to look even shakier than they did already. Um, so look, a, a quick note too, Brett actually worked on a blog post to accompany this podcast and I've linked through to it in this week's show notes. So do go and check that out. It covers all of the basic controls Brett recommends people apply uh, to avoid session cookie theft. Um, so yeah, obviously there are a few approaches to staving this off. You can use FIDO auth, you can use an endpoint authenticator. Uh, Okta has an agent for passwordless authentication that hooks into a user's onboard biometric stuff. Uh, but another approach to solving the issue of stolen sessions is what the majors in this space are calling continuous authentication. Now, that could mean a million things. And thankfully, Brett is here to explain uh, what it actually is. And uh, it's not all that complicated. So that's sort of the back half of the interview. But I'll drop you in here where Brett talks about the threat posed by the latest generation of real-time phishing kits. I hope you enjoy this conversation. In, in, the, in the broader context of the, the volume of credential-based attacks, it's probably still relatively small in terms of, you know, the, the data breaches that are, that are reported, the attacks are reported every year. But we are seeing uh, it used far more often and not just from just by red teams that are demonstrating that it's effective. Uh, so used more, more often and uh, by uh, e-crime groups and the like. Um, and I think it's being driven by the fact that while... MFA coverage is relatively poor in most places now. There are a few um, initiatives on the horizon that, are, that, that mean we're going to have a far more accelerated rate of growth in terms of MFA. And um, as a result, I think adversaries are, are, are kidding up, you know, they're gearing up for, for, for meeting where, where, where they'll need to be um, as, as more organizations get better MFA coverage and, and embrace you know, higher assurance factors. I mean, I, I would think that Microsoft moving to default MFA for a bunch of important accounts over 0365, et cetera, I mean, that's a big motivator, isn't it, to, to make sure that you've got this capability if you are a criminal? Huge motivator. You look at the MFA mandates from governments. So you've got several governments saying, you know, for example, if you're going to offer a digital service to the community, um, then you have to protect those accounts with multi-factor authentication. You see those requirements flow down from, you know, federal governments through to state governments through to places like universities and the private sector. You've got other SaaS providers, Microsoft, you mentioned, Salesforce mandating multi-factor now for new and existing accounts. Uh, Google auto-enrolling users in MFA when they first, um, you know, enroll in a new Google account. You've seen yourself 
you know, customer identity, some demos of, of Auth0 and these kind of tools where you can build a website with enterprise-grade Auth in a matter of hours. Um, and then on the on the workforce side, you've got things like the emergence of passwordless. So, you know, enterprise-grade solutions for... Um, for moving organizations into, into a world in which they no longer need to authenticate with passwords, or indeed we're starting to see the first few organizations with Okta now where they are enrolling users without passwords. So an entire subset of users that will never have a password. So we should expect that with this accelerated rate of change and with the prevalence and the efficacy of MFA that a lot more threat actors are going to look at session cookies alongside credentials. And so when I'm out in the field discussing with customers their current level of security hygiene and where they need to to focus their energy from an identity perspective on meeting the adversary where they are. What I'm telling them at the moment is session cookie theft is where the adversary is right now. Which makes sense. I mean, this is a, a conversation I had with uh, Adam Boileau, not actually in the show, uh, but when we were talking about um, some IDP related issues, you know, I mentioned to him that it's a lot easier to understand how an IDP works than Kerberos, right? And unlike Microsoft Auth and whatnot. And, you know, to, to a degree, its strength is its simplicity because it's all quote unquote browser stuff. Uh, but that does mean that, you know, you get these these session cookies and they're a very powerful thing for, a, for an attacker to obtain and they're a very easy thing for an attacker to use. Absolutely. And, and I, I guess part of the, the role that I've got at the moment is trying to almost provide like a security awareness session for organizations to understand, well, what is a session cookie? What can an adversary do with it if they get access to it? How do they typically get access to it? How should you be preventing them accessing them? How can you detect when they're being abused and, and how, sh- how should you respond? And so the first thing I I tend to do is to just explain how as an adversary to steal a session cookie, you have to be somewhere between a legitimate user that's authenticating to the intended website they wanted to authenticate with, whether that's through malware uh, or through um, phishing attacks that make use of these uh, real-time transparent HTTP proxies. And um, there's some some pros in, in terms of, you know, as a defender, Invalidating a session cookie is something you can do relatively easily without really causing much problems for the legitimate user. They only have to reauthenticate. Compare that. Compare that to you know resetting a password. Obviously, you're in a you're in a better place if your if your biggest problem is session cookie theft. But um, yeah, just teaching them, I guess, how these attacks typically um, uh, occur, and then and then what they should be doing in terms of policy responses to 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 prevent the attacks or, or to at least throw some sand in the gears of the adversary during the attack. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned malware there because malware is one of those things where it doesn't even matter if you're using FIDO, you know, hardware-based auth or whatever. If you've got malware on the device, you can you can get those sesh, that, you know, session information and, and exfil it. You can actually get people to click on a malicious link or something. And if there is a, like, a you know, the right sort of web app bug in the uh, website that that user is authenticated to, they might be able to get it that way. Uh, one of the coolest ones I saw was actually an APT crew using malicious browser extensions to do uh, cookie theft. That was that was also pretty rad. But where we're seeing most of the action right now is in these proxies, right? 
And that means, you know, you might think you're logging onto Google or Salesforce or Microsoft or whatever, you know, enter your username and password, enter a one-time password and, uh, you know, from a code generator or whatever, and then uh, Robert's your mother's brother. Uh, you've, you, you know, they do they do an inline authentication, capture the cookie, pass it back to the user. So the user thinks everything's okay, uh, but they also have that uh, that cookie. I mean, that seems to be the, the category of cookie theft that's booming at the moment, right, is the uh, these proxies, which... You know the the criminal groups have actually put some development effort into. They actually look and feel quite good now. Yeah, probably in equal measure with 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 malware. I think most of the successful attacks that we see often involve malware because, as you said earlier, it's kind of game over once there's um, malware on the device. And there's these um, commodity malware families now that include a, a a module for extracting session cookies from the from the infected user's browser and and transmitting them off to the adversary. And they're um, well distributed, and there are ecosystems of marketplaces for the buying and selling of 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 those sessions. So that's pr- probably where that's we're inter- seeing. That's interesting. I didn't mm. realize that that was a booming thing where people, instead of selling creds, they're actually selling session cookies now. Is that is that actually a thing? That is a thing. Um, often accompanied by tools uh, that will try and replicate as best they can the the browser configuration of the infected user to try and defeat as many of the checks as possible. So that's um, that's well, yeah. I have seen. I it makes sense, right? Because I have seen people selling, uh, yeah, browser configuration information on, you know, that they've pilfered from a data broker or whatever, and they're selling that in the forum. So that's what you'd use it for. So yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, we don't have any direct observability of of endpoints, obviously, as an as an RDP. But but there's plenty of third party research out there that suggests that these basic info stealers like Redline Stealer and Raccoon and and uh, this malware is. Um, become quite popular as there's been more BYOD use over the last couple of years and that some of these ecosystems, um, they get very popular in, in, in a short space of time. It's kind of like a malware as a service community in a lot of ways. So the, the, uh, the, the malware uh, ha- has an ecosystem that kind of comes with it and, and the less mm. capable actors can, can make use of it. They're kind of almost following the, the ransomware lead there. On the inline you know, real-time phishing, as you mentioned, there's certainly been um, a big jump in that activity. There was some research done um, last year by Stony Brook University. It was sponsored by Palo Alto. And they looked at all of the phishing infrastructure that Palo had identified over the past two years. And the proportion of those that was uh, man-in-the-middle proxies had grown something like 6x, so 600% um, Mm. uh, over two years from 2019 to 2021. And from our perspective, the, the phishing infrastructure that we observe, I think last year was the first year where uh, the use of these man-in-the-middle proxies was um, was in more than 50% of, of the infrastructure that we identified. So that's that's it, it's increasing at, a, at, a, um, at a, a fairly substantial rate of growth at the moment. And so what yeah. we're trying to convince people is that, you know, these attacks are effective against accounts that are protected only by an authenticator that, relies on a possession of a shared secret, as you mentioned. So SMS, email, authenticator apps, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think you got to sort of give credit to the Americans, right? Because there's zero trust uh, executive order where they're expecting, you know, US government departments to transition to zero trust architecture. You know, one, one of the key points in that is they have recommended um, or mandated that they need to move to what they're calling uh, phishing resistant uh, uh, multi-factor authentication, which just means FIDO, basically. Um and, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like with the with the increase of prevalence and sophistication of these of these you know proxy based cookie theft things, 
I mean, you know, as we've already established, malware is a whole separate category and Fido doesn't really do anything about that, but it certainly does clean up this stuff. Do you think we're, we're you know, I, I, I joked with the chief solutions officer of Ubico just the other day, actually, we were doing an interview and and I said, well, you know, it really feels like now it's the, it's the dawn of the Fido era. And he said, yeah, but you and me have been saying that on this podcast for like three or four years. But I, I, I do, you know, I, I hope it's not like Linux on the desktop. I hope it actually is a thing that becomes uh, prevalent. Do you feel like we're hitting that tipping point? Because I really feel like for the first time, I really feel like we're close. I think we, we're going to. Like the current state of affairs with adoption of MFA is, is pretty dire. Kudos to Microsoft for putting out some stats over the last couple of years that said that, you know, only 22% of users in their ecosystem are protected by MFA and only 30% of global admins in the, in the Microsoft ecosystem. And that's, I'm guessing most of that's OTP anyway, right? Yeah. And that, that's a pretty scary number to, to look at when you're talking about, no, we want to also shift people from low assurance factors to higher assurance factors as, as our kind of next staff. We're, we're moving from a, a fairly low base. Um, even the even the numbers from Okta, which are which are substantively better, you know, on on our uh, on the workforce front, um, just less than half of our workforce uh, customers still allow SMS as a factor in, in in one or more of their policies, versus only like just over twenty percent for security keys and biometrics. So there is a big a big journey ahead. But like I said, all these trends are are, are moving in the right direction. We now have um, these kind of uh, enterprise passwordless solutions being rolled out that try and manage some of the issues around uh, user enrollment and factor revocation and that kind of thing. Trying trying to accommodate a world in which um, these um, this kind of these kind of authenticators are, are are going to be more prevalent. So we're naturally trying to push our um, our our customers towards. Higher assurance factors like WebAuthn, as you mentioned, U2F security keys, smart cards, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, so, so is that how Okta's approaching the whole passwordless question? I'd imagine it would involve some sort of extra device, whether that's a phone, whether that's a you know security key or whatever. Is that what you're doing? Is that yeah? So doing? we're basically doing um, what well, we offer WebAuthn as as an option across across um, various devices. We also have FastPass, which is our passwordless solution. And it's basically device as an authenticator. It works in a similar fashion uh, to WebAuthn, Web only because you've got an agent on the on the endpoint. Um, just, it's just a little bit easier for, for, from a management perspective, as I mentioned, for enrollment and revocation, that kind of thing. And, you know, customers are really responding well to it. It's it's a new you know it's a new area. There's a lot of testing happening, trying to figure out what other factors you should have in the flow, how to make the enrollment process as smooth as possible. Uh, all of these all of these challenges we're working through at the moment. And I think um, you know my daily experience as a user of of, of this passwordless tech is um, that I will never go back. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's the first time in my life where I think my enterprise authentication experience is considerably better than my consumer experience, which has always been the other way around in the past. Um, so we're... Um, well, it's funny It's funny you mentioned that actually, because I bought a new laptop some time ago, uh, a few months ago, and it's got, you know, a fingerprint to unlock. It's a, one of the new M1 
Apple ones, which I, of course, bought imminently before they updated their tech, which is what I always wind up doing. Um, but, you know, once you get used to just using your fingerprint to unlock your computer, now I come down into my office and my office computer doesn't have that and I want to throw it out the window every time I have to put in my password. So, yes, I, I hear you. It's amazing when you compare that as well to what we've been pushing to customers for so long, you know, like long and complex mm. strings plus six digits that you get sent over a phone. I mean, no wonder they hated multi-factor authentication. No wonder users uh, complained about it. Um, so, so does the Okta endpoint agent hook into like onboard biometrics or is that how right. it works? Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, um, it's, it's good because it's, it's, it's cross platform. It's the same experience, whether you're on windows or Android or iOS or, um, or Mac. Um, and, um, it just, yeah, it just allows for a super, super, uh, fast authentication to, to, to get to assets that, that require, you know, high assurance, and, and, I, and I imagine even though it's not technically based on web or thin, it applies some of the same principles, right? Which is that the endpoint authenticates that it's actually authenticating to the right place exactly. uh, to prevent these proxies from being able to obtain. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the, there was some really good um, research that Authio did last year that I often put in front of customers, which was they measured the um, rate of successful MFA completion on one axis and then on the other axis, they had uh, the the time required to authenticate, and you know WebAuthn, uh, biometrics, and onboard authenticators, you know platform authenticators, um, completed the you know at the highest rate and took the least amount of time, something like five seconds to authenticate. So basically, if you ever hear anyone say, "Well, you know we we would like to move to one of these solutions, but we we fear that we'll have user resistance." Um, that's no longer really an excuse. It's it's a mm. faster experience um, and, and a more secure one. For once, security and user experience are kind of in harmony rather than in tension with each other. I'd imagine, though, one of the bottlenecks for adoption of this is hardware support for biometrics, right? True, true. Um, so you you have to be using a, a device that has a TPM, obviously, um, yep. for, for WebAuthn. Um, there are... Um, there are some hacky ways around this using um, storing keys in software and the like, but it's probably not the, uh, the the approach that we should be recommending for people. So in terms of the evolution of these um, man-in-the-middle fishing kits you mentioned earlier, you were asking me about some of the things that the adversaries are experimenting with to try and defeat defeat um, detection and, and that kind of thing. Um, we've basically seen them over the last couple of years introduce a few additional features and some of the you've already referenced. Uh, first of all, we saw them introduce the use of, of upstream proxy networks. So the traffic that, that's forwarded from the from the uh, targeted user through the man-in-the-middle proxy is then forwarded to an upstream proxy network before it gets to the target application. That's just to make sure on the adversary side that they want to make sure that the IP address of the upstream proxy that, that authenticates is unrelated to the phishing infrastructure that they've set up. Because obviously, mm. phishing infrastructure is often identified early in the piece, early in a campaign. So they want to um, just just make it a, a, a little harder for for applications. Yeah, for, piece. It, 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 it's a nice nice bypass when they hit someone who's actually paying attention to threat intelligence, which is you know. Yeah. I guess I guess they must be bumping into it if they're if they're bothering to circumvent it. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of a good sign, right? There's also the yeah. use of redirect servers between the target and the phishing infrastructure again just to protect that phishing infrastructure against rapid takedown. Um, now we're also seeing in those upstream proxy networks, the use of IP checks 
to um, basically check the originating client IP address against certain countries or entities that they don't want to target or bots or scanners, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, NSA.gov. Yeah, probably skip. Yeah, FBI, FBI.gov. Yeah, uh, probably probably don't proceed on that one. So, yeah, the, the fact that they're going to those um, step, you know, going through those steps suggests that, that that they've come up against some resistance and they're having to um, to um, add additional infrastructure in, in, into the into the phishing setup, which I think is, is kind of good news for defenders. Um, another um, evolution we've seen is the real-time selection from a from a global network of previously compromised infrastructure, so, such that the, the request is being relayed, that's being relayed is coming from a similar geolocation to the, the user that they targeted. Yeah, now this is an interesting one. And I think it was actually you mentioning that. I think it was you who mentioned that to me just when we were having just, yeah, more of a social uh, conversation recently, which is the you know, the impossible, I think, and then I spoke to Adam about it as well. And yeah, this, this whole thing about bypassing the impossible login checking where you might have a user logged in from, you know, California, and then all of a sudden, uh, they're trying to log in from Siberia, you know, you can, you can, you know, deny that, um, because it's not possible for them to have gotten to Siberia, uh, in, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting that they're now using these proxy networks to be able to find an IP that's geographically similar, similarly located so that they don't fire those alerts. It's actually quite, I'm, I'm almost impressed. It's, you know, the, the, the often cited drill tweet, uh, you don't under any circumstances got to hand it to them. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, as I, as I said, that, that it's a, it's a sign that, um, Many of the defences that that we encourage our customers to put in place, and many of the detections that we have in place, um, are having an impact. That the adversary is having to take these extra steps. Um, so it's kind of a good position to be in, but it's also something I want to make sure our customers understand because it means that yeah. a single like a single control is probably never really going to be sufficient. You're going to need a blend of multiple controls to account for the fact that you know um, uh, the adversaries are, are using these techniques, etc. Too to um, try and ensure that their, that their infrastructure is, is still going to be um, uh, yielding them some results. Um, so typically I walk into an organization with, with six broad recommendations around what to do about it. Um, most of those, you know, most of the ones I'll mention now prob- probably sound a bit doctor specific, but they're, they are similar in, in other IDPs. It's just a different name for the same thing typically. But um, the first of them is, 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 of course, apply endpoint protection tools. That's that's a given, being that malware is um, such a common uh, mechanism for the, the theft of session cookies. Uh, bonus points if your if your EDR solution integrates with your IDP, such that if the user tries to authenticate from a device that's exhibiting a poor security posture, that can, that access can be denied. Um, the second one is is obviously applying strong authenticators. We've already discussed that a little bit. You know, authenticators. Well, with- I mean, let me let me just ask you. I mean, I imagine that you're because one of the things that you wanted to talk about here. I mean, you use these soapbox things to try to give good advice to your customers, right? And mm-hmm. I really like it when when sponsors and vendors do that. Um, I you know, I imagine that one of the things that you would recommend is that where possible, they start using your endpoint agent to do passwordless auth because it's a good UX and it actually gets them around a lot of this stuff. Absolutely, we we promote the passwordless approach alongside. You know, web Authen is a standalone authenticator, smart cards, particularly in, in government circles. Um, we basically just want to push everyone towards um, authenticators that have um, better and more phishing resistant properties. Um, and, and do you have some sort of resource that's, you know, easy to digest that people could go have a look at? 
you know, is there octa.com slash upgrade your auth or some, you know, some URL like that? Now you're giving me a good idea though. Uh, we certainly should. Um, I don't think we've been having these conversations enough um, about about this particular threat uh, up until now. Yeah. I think maybe it was it was maybe too niche in the past, but I think we're at the point where we. But need see, to. I think that's that's why I was so keen to talk about this with you is because I think that the reason we haven't had that conversation quite enough is because we, ha- you know, it it just feels like this sort of stuff has picked up pace big time recently in terms of just um, uh, the sophistication of these of these in the middle proxy things, right, for doing cookie theft. They're just much better now. And, you know, you speak to, like, I I know a lot of pen testers, obviously, and you speak to someone like Adam Boileau about it, and he's like, ah, we've been doing that for years. And it's like, okay, sure, you have, but now everybody's doing it. And that and that kind of changes the urgency with which people need to address it. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 a different story when a, when a, a pen test uh, demonstrates to you that theoretically a, a threat exists. I think once you've seen an attack from a real adversary using the same techniques, it changes it changes uh, yeah. your, your perception of that risk pretty substantially. Yeah, and even if you've been done by an APT crew or something, like it's kind of defensible to be able to see, well, you know, if it wasn't that, it was going to be something else. But now that everybody's getting rinsed by um, idiots who are just renting this infrastructure, yeah, it certainly does change the calculus. Um, so, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about in this in this interview is what you're advising uh, customers to do like short of using WebAuthn and and FIDO keys or your endpoint agent. What are you actually advising them to do policy wise to improve the situation here? So yeah, I walk in typically with six pieces of advice. One endpoint protection, as we've discussed against against malware, obviously to take care, care of the malware thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Two strong authenticators, we've discussed as well. You know the, the, the authenticators with the most phishing resistance, WebAuthn, smart cards, etc. Uh, the use of network zones to um, limit uh, authentication to by, by geolocation, by IP, by uh, ASN, by IP type. I think that's one that I think a lot of folks don't realize you can deny access pre-authentication from IP addresses that are associated with anonymizing proxies. Um, I don't know why anyone in, in an enterprise context wants to authenticate users via an yeah, anonymizing I mean, proxy. Yeah, I mean, I've always said like, and the internet freedom crowd used to get kind of mad at me when I'd say it, but I'm like, you should absolutely not be allowing any connection to your organization from a Tor exit relay. Like, that's just dumb. And um, yeah, like why why on earth would you do that? If you've got one staff member who's going to complain, oh, well, that's their problem. Exactly. Suck it up. Exactly. Got a cup, <laughs> basically. So that's, yeah, number three network zones. Number four, device context. So in the octa, in the... Um, in the Okta world, device context encompasses everything from whether or not the device is known versus new, so previous user behavior, um, whether the device is registered with Okta using something like FastPass, whether the device is managed through a third-party MDM solution, and whether the, de- the device is um, demonstrating a strong security posture through the integrations with EDR. So any combination of the, the last three of those is going to have some impact on, on the efficacy of, of um, inline phishing. Um, so you um, basically, we, we we recommend folks to 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 go with either you know registered or managed and and secure um, to um, to to basically throw throw some sand in the gears of, of the adversary there. Um, on the new versus known device, that that forms part of like number five on my list, which is behavior detection. So this is obviously detecting if there is a new IP, uh, new device, uh, impossible travel all that kind of thing. Um, and in policy, you can um, 
force a, a, a step up authentication whenever any of that context changes. So that's something that's that's also um, I, I recommend folks to switch on and make use of. And even if you don't um, force step up authentication in policy, all that context also um, gets fed into Okta system log. So if you're streaming that out to Splunk or your other security analytics tools, these are indicators that you can write detections on, um, which is number six. Well, yeah, I mean, we had Paul Lanzi from Remediant uh, on the show not so long ago talking about uh, uh, identity threat detection response, which is, you know, the new uh, acronym that ends with DR, uh, mm -hmm. basically, but it's one that makes sense because what you're talking about is sensible configuration and whatever. And, oh, yeah, maybe you kick a few things out to Splunk. But it feels like there's like a, a, an entirely you know, emerging product category around, okay, once you've done all of this stuff with a good config, um, you're in a good position to actually pull some decent signals out and there's people making tools to, to do that now. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we write um, detections internally uh, uh, that we are now starting to share in, in private channels with, with a select group of our customers who we know that they have good detection engineering capabilities. And is, this, is this eventually going to be, is the idea that this will eventually be a tab uh, for Okta customers where they can just hit that tab in their, um, in their Okta console and see some alerting? I'm not sure exactly how it will manifest in the end. What, what is interesting is um, you've probably heard of the, the terms use continuous authentication, um, which is where I think the, the, the product category is kind of moving instead of just the things that we do to detect as a security team when there has been, you know, uh, session roaming and session concurrency and, and some other um, attribute that's that's suggestive of of um, of potentially suspicious activity. There is there is we've kind of got the the product team interested in continuous authentication as as a concept. So this is the the. the the idea of, of continuous authentication is... Now, hang on. Was this number six? Because I just realized oh, sorry, I six. totally interrupted you when, you when you were doing your six, uh, you know, your, your, your six pieces of advice. What's number six? Then we'll talk about continuous uh, authentication. So six is to monitor and investigate anomalous uh, authentication events now using system yeah. log. So that's either by looking at it directly, system log directly in the admin console streaming it out to Splunk or Amazon. Or yeah, okay, 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 got it, got it. Yep. So look, we are we are now getting into that that conversation about continuous authentication. Um, you know, it's pretty buzzwordy. We, we love, you know, a lot of security vendors love to add the word continuous to it. Uh, so there's continuous vulnerability scanning, continuous this, continuous that. Uh, so what, what you know, give, give us the spiel on continuous authentication. What does that mean? Does that mean you want the user tapping their YubiKey every 10 seconds? Like, <laughs> you know, what does it actually mean when you, when you say continuous authentication? Well, continuous authentication by definition is that you are evaluating changes in user context post-authentication. So this is not the native territory of an IDP. This is not what IDPs were designed to do. They do not really assess con context again unless you're... Uh, well, I'm just going to butt in there and say maybe they should have been designed to do that. But anyway, <laughs> I'll let you continue. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of... Uh, you know, the baton is passed to the application post post authentication was the idea of the IDP. Not um, my problem, losers. Good <laughs> luck. <laughs> so, you know, responding to post authentication events typically requires the customer to do the heavy lifting to ingest and filter logs from their IDP, from their applications, from their devices, etc., into their security analytics tool, and, and then write their automated responses from there. What we obviously have found is that. Most organizations don't have the detection engineering capabilities required to do that effectively. And 
and even if they did, it's, it's pretty difficult to take remediative action in close to real time. So the, the root of the problem is that there is no single view of session risk. Like the IDP has their perspective, every one of the application service providers, you know, the SaaS providers has, has their view, any security tooling that's in the way from third parties has their view. And it isn't really, it isn't really shared. Uh, the, the risk signals are all siloed. Um, as, as much as we talk about, you know, uh, integrations between products, et cetera, so far the industry cooperation around this has been pretty spotty. And the, the well, that's that's kind of why I feel like this this um, ITDR stuff might have legs is because it's going to try to glue some of this stuff together. True, true. What the, what, what the SaaS community, software as a service community, is trying to do is to figure out, you know, what can we do to better work together to exchange risk signals, basically. And so yeah. there is some standards being put together at the moment um, uh, under the OpenID Foundation. One of them is called the Shared Signals and Events Framework, which is basically just an open standard for webhooks. And then a project within that is called CAPE, Continuous Access Evaluation Protocol, which basically applies that shared signals framework to create a standardized way for IDPs and service providers to you know, send each other signals on changes in, in the status of a user's context, post-authentication. So Okta's on the board of the OpenID Foundation with folks like Google and Cisco and Microsoft, where we're trying to work on these specs and understand from our perspective, well, what is the role of an IDP in, in a world where hopefully there is a lot more of this rig, risk signal being shared using an, a, a previously agreed upon standard? Um, so we, 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 we kind of feel like we could play a role as um, both uh, a receiver of signals. So if, if a, an application like a Salesforce or a Slack or someone identifies something anomalous about a user session because they're, they're obviously looking at the actions that a user is taking, yeah, which that, you don't see as an IDP. Which we don't see, so I right? totally, I totally get your point about why IDPs weren't built to do this. But it, it makes sense to plumb that back to the IDP because you might say, well, you know, a user has done something slightly risky, but it's okay. And then you get a signal back saying, well, you know, the user's doing something very risky over here as well. You know, you put those two things together. You, you, you're actually, you know, that, that, that could be quite powerful. Exactly. And then we also have line of sight over what other applications that user is already authenticated to. So then we can also be a transmitter of these signals to say, hey, other application over here, Salesforce has observed this, Okta has observed mm. this, maybe you might want to take an action on that event. So both as a transmitter and a receiver and also as an aggregator, because we have that kind of uh, broader visibility of, of these risk signals, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, every, everyone in the ecosystem is probably going to have a different view of what a risk signal means in terms of how they should respond. Um, but as we talk through the use cases with you know, software as a service partners and with uh, the product team at Okta, folks are getting quite excited. This is one of those things where engineering and security is actually leading the discussion because we're viewing the adversary activity and, and we're seeing that, that the, the, the business, I guess, is is kind of uh, following our lead. So, well, one nice thing too about about the big pivot to SaaS generally is that you can do stuff like this. It's not like you know old Windows networks with horrible enterprise applications on them where they all look different. You know, there's a lot more sort of standardization among SaaS deployments. I mean, everyone's going to use it slightly differently, right? I get that, but it's it's not like the bad old days. So you know, I feel like this this 
this is a great opportunity because you'll be able to figure out stuff that works universally across all different organization types. That'll just happen. There will be, I mean, it won't, you know, you're not going to get every single bad act uh, caught, but you're going to be able to catch an awful lot of the dumb stuff for sure. You know, this will be very powerful. And be able to respond faster. You know, there are some events that might look benign in isolation, just like you said, session roaming, session mm. concurrency, sign out events, changing device compliance, maybe changing device posture could could be benign. But, you know, it's the combination of those of those risk signals together that 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 lead you to believe that something is suspicious. Um, and, you know, in our case, we can also contribute back as an IDP for things like an abandoned MFA attempt, you know, a request that went unanswered or uh, an abandoned credential enrollment attempt or some some other change in login behavior that, that we can observe. So um, there's, there's a huge range of actions that are going to be available, obviously, in the, at the application level, depending on the signals we're sending through. And again, it's up to them to assess the relative risk, like the risk of uh, the takeover of a Zoom session is different to a Slack session, to a different to a Salesforce session, et cetera. Um, yeah. The same event might compel one application to invalidate the session or, or you know, reset the user's password or something of that nature. Other, other applications might just quarantine the user in some way, limit their scope of access, limit them to only... only but I, I, guess, I guess my point is when you start bringing all this stuff together, you're going to quickly identify a handful of things that are just always malicious. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like there will just be those things. And, you know, I, I talk to the people at Proofpoint quite a lot and they've got that sort of stuff as well. They might build a detection and they're just like, okay, that's always bad. You know, there's just some of them where you get to chip away at them and it's usually, um, yeah, you can, you can knock out some really common, um, you know, attack types by just building those, those sort of detections, which currently right now, if you've only got the info from the IDP, you can't really do it. If you've only got the info from the app, you can't really do it. And as we know, you start bringing things together and putting some context around them. That's where you can uh, make a difference. Bingo. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, third-party security tools will still have a place here because they have their own uh, context that they can observe. You know, you mentioned Proofpoint in the in the in the in the, in the sense of email or endpoint protection. Obviously, they they all bring they all bring together some some level of context that the other players in the ecosystem don't currently have. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I remember even talking to the Remediant uh, team, and they do privileged access management for mostly these days for Windows networks, and they did an integration with CrowdStrike, and you, you sort of think, hang on, why are you integrating PAM with CrowdStrike? And then they start telling you the use cases, and you're like, of course, right? So it is nice that we're getting to a world where stuff talks to each other. Well, yeah, the hope is that that these that these standards will be the mechanism through which people talk together. Um, because at the moment, they're very much, like I say, that the, the integrations have been spotty. Um, they've been based on commercial considerations more often than security considerations. Whereas I think the, the software as a service ecosystem can see that there is value in, in, in sharing these signals among each other in the hope that they'll be getting when, some, so some signals back. When, when are we going to see this? You know, because this sounds fantastic. But like, is this the sort of thing that we might see in three years? Or is this is this on the roadmap already sort of thing? So there are a, a bunch of SaaS providers and RDPs already experimenting at the moment. Um, what the final form of it will be? I mean, this, the standard is already agreed on. It's just yeah. you're only now seeing RDPs and service yeah. providers yeah. actually start exchanging the risk signals using this protocol and figuring out how they then surface that in 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 policy and automated responses. And that's the next bit. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if you started seeing this 
you know, being used in anger by, by early next year. See, where I think it's going to be used initially uh, is actually good, which is that some of the threat teams at these companies are going to start exchanging telemetry and then they're going to be able to ring up a few customers and say, hey, you have a problem. That's usually how this stuff happens, right? Yeah. And then, you know, after they've used it a bit, they might start productizing it, I guess. God, that's a horrible word. Horrible non-word, productizing. Listen to me. What's happened to me? Um, Brett, uh, that's all we got time for, mate. That was really interesting. And I want to congratulate you for using what sounded like an awful marketing buzzword phrase, right? Which is continuous authentication. And then actually giving us an explanation that makes me kind of go, oh, that's that's really cool. <laughs> Which is well, not I think normally it is really what cool. you I'm get after buzzwords. What's that? Well, I think it is really cool. And I'm quite excited yeah. about where it could go. No, man, I'm catching the buzz too. Like, I, I, I think it's, I think it sounds really good. So um, that was all really interesting stuff, man. Thanks a lot for joining us uh, on the show. It's always good to have you back uh, at Risky Biz uh, HQ. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it with you again. Awesome. Thanks, Pat. That was Brett Winifred there with a chat about continuous authentication and some related topics. Big thanks to him uh, for that conversation and big thanks to Okta for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that is it for this edition of The Soapbox. I'm taking a break for about 10 days from now. So uh, no weekly show this week or next, but I will be back before you know it. Until then, though, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.